Okay, everybody, good morning, and welcome to our show today. As I mentioned in the, in the promotional material for today's show, um, I can't believe I've never done a program specifically on this topic, although I've certainly talked about it and written about it plenty. It's just, for, at least as far as I can tell, I've never done a teleseminar on this exact subject, which is the listing presentation. Might as well confess up front here that I got you all here with a little bit of a bait and switch in calling this show the perfect listing presentation. Now, don't fret. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I didn't get here to sell you anything. Um, I'm not saying that. Rather that, because I'm, what, what I'm getting ready to tell you is that I don't want you to do a presentation at all. But unless you're new to Sell with Soul, you probably already knew that. It's something I've been preaching about for years, um, about not doing a presentation when you meet with a seller, but rather having a conversation with them. And by that I mean a conversation where they actually do most of the talking and you do most of the listening. It's kind of funny how our industry has so embraced the concept of doing a formal presentation when you go on a listing appointment with a homeowner who wants to, here's a concept, sell their home. I mean, what other profession does it this way? If, I don't know, let's say that you have chronic headaches or marital problems or you want to add an addition to your home or renovate your kitchen. When you meet with the chiropractor or the marriage counselor or the general contractor, do they spend your time together in that first meeting telling you all about them? I mean, I hope not. <laughs> no, they should spend your time together talking about you, talking about you and your headaches, your marital problems or, you know, the wish list in your home renovation, Right. But when a homeowner invites a real estate agent over to discuss a rather important issue of selling the home, we're trained to go into presentation mode with fancy PowerPoints and glossy presentation binders, maybe even a video, and instead of doing what any other professional would do. And that's having a conversation with you about your problem or your project to learn as much as they can about it to determine the best course of action. So I hope I didn't just lose you all if you were here hoping I was going to spend the next 45 minutes telling you how to create a great listing presentation. Um, I'm not going to do that, but you know what? What I'm going to tell you is way better. So stick around. Now let me give you a little bit of history about me and listing presentations. Uh, I used to do the traditional formal listing presentation just as we were trained to do. I would go into the seller's home, take the tour of the home, and then I'd sit them down and go through my presentation page by page. Now, I will say that I created my listing presentation myself from scratch in my own words, using my own opinions about how a house ought to be marketed. So I do feel that my quote-unquote presentation was a little bit better than your average real estate agents who you know, is just relying on the corporate stuff that their office provides. But still, I'd leave my listing appointments two hours later <laughs> totally exhausted and just not really feeling the love between me and the seller that I was shooting for. But then I had an epiphany, somewhat late in my career, after I met personally with a listing agent about one of my own personal properties that was outside of my, my area. And she didn't present anything at all. This was probably, if I think about it, this was probably the first time I had ever been in a position to sell a home myself or to sell a home that I owned that wasn't in Denver. So, of course, when I was selling homes in Denver, I just did them myself. Um, but this was outside of Denver, so it was my very first 
listing appointment that I'd ever had. And so the agent came over. She didn't present anything to me. She just came to my house. She took the tour. She made pretty, you know, reasonably intelligent, relevant comments. She asked reasonably intelligent, relevant questions. And we had a conversation about selling the home. Now, what's funny, get this, is before she showed up, I was actually dreading being subjected to a presentation. I literally was, I did not want to be presented to, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to sit here for the next 90 minutes and endure her PowerPoint presentation or her fancy listing binder. So that was pretty eye-opening in itself, just what I was feeling before she got there. Honestly, after this meeting with, in my very first listing um, appointment where I was the audience, I felt like an idiot thinking that this is what I should have been doing all these years instead of subjecting my seller prospects and myself to a formal presentation that was lasting more than an hour by the time all was said and done. So I totally reworked my approach to listing appointments. And I tell you, it was an amazing relief to not be going into these appointments in presentation mode, but rather conversation mode. And it seemed so obvious once I grasped this concept. And from a practical perspective, from there on out, I pretty much got every listing I interviewed for if I wanted it. And what's more is I felt that my relationships with my sellers got off on a much more positive foot, going in in conversation mode, not presentation mode. Now, to answer the burning question, if I'm recommending that you not go through a formal listing presentation with a seller, do you still need to do a written presentation? Okay, yes, I believe you do for several reasons. First, I believe that the process of putting together a listing presentation is good for you, even if you never share it with a seller, even if they never see it. It's a good idea for you to put it together so that you identify what it is you offer, what it is you bring to the table as a real estate agent, what your marketing philosophies even are, and what sort of things you're going to offer, what sort of things you're going to do to market the home, what you're going to charge, what additional special services that you as the listing agent um, might commit to, will commit to. Now, again, even if you never give your listing presentation, and from here on out, I actually I like to call it a listing proposal to avoid confusion. And when I talk about a listing proposal, what I mean is the written thing, whatever it is that you, you create that's in writing. I'd call it a listing proposal as opposed to a presentation. Um, but anyway, even if you never give it to the seller, just putting it together is going to be a very valuable experience for you, a confidence-building experience for you. And for that matter, actually, I think you do want to have the written material available to share with the seller. Whether or not they look at it is their prerogative. Um, they don't have to look at it if they're not interested either, but I do believe that it's the professional thing to do to come armed with reading material for them. And I'm going to talk more about that here in a bit. I really, I always did get compliments on my listing proposals. Um, many sellers told me that they were by far the most professional ones they saw. So I know that they made an impression. Um, and in fact, that's one thing I was a little disappointed about with the agent who introduced me to this concept of the listing conversation. She didn't mean to, but she did. Um, she actually didn't bring anything with her at all. I mean, she didn't bring anything. She didn't even bring market information. And after our meeting, I did feel a little like, you know, she could have left something behind for me to look at. Now, 
Um, let me pause here for a moment and differentiate between the listing proposal and the market analysis, which we also call the CMA. In my definition, the listing proposal is where you describe three things. One, the marketing services you will provide. Two, information about you. And three, your fee. The CMA, the market analysis, that's where you provide detailed, specific market information with which you and the seller will use to come up with your listing price. I do believe that a CMA should always be in writing and that you should go through it in detail with the seller. And I'll tell you soon when and how I recommend that you do that. All right, so you're ready to dive in. Okay, ready to talk about how to do the perfect listing conversation, not presentation. All right, so how do I recommend that you pre pre prepare for, not pray for, how do I recommend that you prepare for and approach a listing appointment from start to finish? Okay, let's set the stage here and keep it simple. You get a call from a homeowner asking if you would like to talk with her about selling her home. You say, yeah, of course, and you make the appointment. In this initial conversation, let's say it's on the phone, um, however it came to be, you'll want to gather some information, both to help you prepare for your appointment and to build some rapport. So here are some examples of things you might ask when you're on the phone with the homeowner. Um, what's the address? Duh, okay. Um, how long have you lived there? Why are you moving? Why are you selling? Um, do you have a time frame in mind? And then, or just very simply, tell me about your home. Okay. Now, of course, if the house is a rental property or, or something, you know, or a farm or, you know, vacant land or something like that, you'll ask different questions, you know, if there are renters and if there's a lease, things like that. But in general, the goal here is to get an overall feeling for the seller's situation and, um, most importantly, start to build rapport by asking them questions, not pitching yourself. Okay, so gather the information that you can over the phone, be pleasant, uh, make the appointment. Also, and I guess this is up to you, but this is what I would do, is let them know that you will be dropping off a marketing proposal for them to review before your meeting. The reason that I did this, and when I say a marketing proposal, that's what you would typically call a pre-listing package or just you know a listing presentation, listing proposal. But what I would do is I would prepare my full listing proposal without a CMA, but the full listing proposal, and I would drop it off at the seller's home as soon as I could after our conversation. I wouldn't knock on their door. I wouldn't, you know, do anything like that. I would just go over there, drop it on their front porch, whatever, and so that they have it there to look at. Now, why do I do this? Well, several reasons. One, if they're interested in what's in there, you know, they want to read about me, they want to know what my marketing services I, I offer and what I charge, it's all going to be there in black and white. They can look at it before I get there. If they're not interested in any of it, they're probably not going to be interested in it once I'm there either, but I'm okay with that. They had time to look at it, and this, you know, and it's a safe assumption for me, I think, to say, you know what, I, I assume you looked at it. If they didn't, it's because they weren't interested. You know, if they did, then great. They might have questions about it, and that's fine. Um, one of the biggest reasons I did the what most people would call a pre-listing packet is to get my fee on the table. 
And as you'll see in the sample listing presentation, that or the listing proposal that's on there, I just put my fee right out there. And this was an enormous relief for me once I started doing it that way. Is If nothing else, the sellers would probably look at that. And so when I get there, they already know what it is I charge. I don't have to sit there for an hour doing a dog and pony show to try to prove to them what it is I'm, you know, that I'm worth what I'm going to charge. If I guess if they looked at it, they call me up and say, you know what, this is outrageous, I'm not going to pay that, then okay, I'm all right with that. Um, we'll cancel the appointment and we can part as friends. But um, at least once you've gotten that fee on the table, you don't have that elephant in the room or gorilla in the room or whatever that metaphor is hanging over you that you need to deal with. So, um, so that's why I did the pre-listing packet ahead of time. Okay, um, so where are we? Okay, you've made the appointment. You've dropped off the pre-listing packet. Here's what you need to do next. Drive by the house. Now, of course, if you're dropping off a marketing proposal, your pre-listing package, then you'll be doing this anyway. But either way, don't skip this step. Um, make a mental note if you see anything that makes the house stand out in the neighborhood, either positively or negatively. If your market allows previewing, which I hope it does, I would go ahead and preview any other homes within a few blocks of the house, whether or not they're comparable. The reason you do this is because when you go meet with a seller, unless, it's in a, unless the home is in a neighborhood that you are very familiar with, you'll sound and feel and be, frankly, you'll be more of an expert in the neighborhood if you've been in the other homes that the seller is very well aware are on the market. You know, if they're within a block or two of the house, the seller knows they're on the market. If you've been inside those homes, then it just gives you a little boost of, of confidence. Okay, and if the seller mentions it, you can say, oh, yeah, I've been in that home. Now, if previewing is not allowed in your area, and I hope that's not the case, at least drive by all of the houses that are available um, within a few blocks of the seller's house. Um, it's just, again, it's a big confidence boost if you're at least somewhat familiar with what's going on in the immediate neighborhood. And, of course, the more familiar you are, the better. Now, if time permits before your appointment, um, I'd also try to do a preliminary market analysis for your own purposes, not to share with the seller, but just go ahead and do your own CMA. Now, again, the more you know going into your listing appointment, the more confident you're going to be. Now, if time is short, I mean, let's say that you made the appointment, you know, on Thursday morning and you're meeting with them, you know, on Friday morning or maybe even Thursday afternoon, Okay, if time is short, here's some good news. For this first appointment, and yes, notice I said first, implying that there will be a second, you really don't have to do a lot of preparation if you simply can't. Now, I will certainly recommend that you do pre prepare as much as you can, but if you can't, remember, in this first appointment, you're going to be listening more than you're talking. So if you don't know everything you need to know yet about this area's real estate, that's okay. The focus of this first appointment is on the seller, not on you. So, again, I'm going to say prepare as much as you possibly can, but if you can't, it's okay. All right, so you arrive at your appointment, knock on the door, exchange your pleasantries, thank them for inviting you over, ask for a tour of the home. As you're touring the home, ask some relevant questions. For example, uh, when you're in the basement, ask how old the furnace is. Um, when you're outside, ask about the roof or the swimming pool or whatever. Um, if you're a note taker, 
take notes on everything they share with you about the home. Okay. As you're doing your tour, um, make sure that you note the number of bedrooms, the number of baths, the garage spaces, any bonus rooms, bonus spaces, or cool features. And confirm some of this with the seller. Um, it, I mean, it's kind of one of those silly things, well, you, what do you mean how many bedrooms and bathrooms? But um, just make sure you get the right number because you may rely on these notes in the future. Well, you're going to be relying on these notes to, to do your market analysis, so you want to make sure that you have the information right. Um, I don't know if you have you know, tax records in your area, but I know in Denver they were very often wrong, which also speaks to, to square footage. So if you already have a feeling for what the square footage is from the county records or from what they told you, and you go into the home and you're like, this doesn't feel right. This isn't 1,800 square feet. This is 1,400 square feet. It's just not 1,800 square feet. It feels bigger. It feels smaller, whatever. Um, if it's not feeling like the right square footage that you were expecting, ask if they have a copy of their appraisal when they bought the house or maybe refinanced it. I mean, that's a nice thing to have anyway. So, again, there's another relevant, intelligent question. By the way, do you mind if I look at the, you know, the appraisal? Um, if you see any obstacles to sale, note those. If there are upgraded appliances or, or something, um, go ahead and make a note of that. All right, then we'll go back to the dining room table or wherever it is you're going to talk, and that's when you do your presentation. Just kidding. No. That's when you have your conversation or more of a conversation. About what? About them and their situation. Remember, this first meeting, you're in information gathering mode, not presentation mode. So do that. Gather information. Ask them again about their time frame or you know, just confirm what they told you before. Ask if they've ever sold a home with a real estate agent before. Maybe ask if they know what their mortgage payoff is, if that seems like a comfortable thing to ask. Now here's the kicker. Tell them that now that you've seen their home and you have the information you need, you'll go back to your office and prepare a detailed market analysis for the home. You'll be in touch to schedule a follow-up meeting, or maybe you could just go ahead and schedule the meeting with them for the next day or two. Then go to your CMA. If previewing is allowed in your market, get out there and preview all of the direct competition for the home. As you're, preview, as you're previewing, what you want to do is compare each house that you see to the seller's house. Um, after five or six or seven homes, you'll start to get a good sense of where the seller's house is falling into the scheme of the competition. Maybe it's the nicest home. Maybe it's not the nicest home. Maybe it's somewhere in the middle. But for me, it always took seven to nine houses to get a really good feel for that part of my analysis. Now, as you're out previewing, also drive by the comparable solds. Now, obviously, you can't preview those because someone's living in them now, but try to get a sense, um, both from the MLS description and photos and your drive-bys, which are going to be most comparable to the seller's home. If there are any comparable homes that are under contract, that are, that are pending, um, hey, it doesn't hurt. Make a phone call, see if you can get in them and look at them. You may not be able to, but give it a shot. Um, if you can't, drive by those as well. Now, if previewing is not allowed in your market, um, I still highly recommend that you do these drive-arounds um, for the active listings and the solds. 
what you see in the MLS may be completely different what you see in person. And the more you know, the better your CMA will be, not to mention the more confident that you'll be. Then put your CMA together. Um, I don't have time today to go into all the nuts and bolts of what a good CMA entails. Um, that would be a whole show in itself. But here's what I included in mine. I would include the tax record of the subject property. The old MLS listing, if there is one, I mean, maybe it was listed with another agent or maybe they bought the house in the last few years and so there's still, you know, old MLS data on there. I would include a summary of the current competition, the details of the current competition, a summary of the homes under contract, a summary of all, of all the comparable sales, a summary of what I determine to be the most comparable sales, and the details of those most comparable sales. I also included what I called an estimated cost of sale form, where I estimated the seller's expenses based on an illustrative figure that was somewhere in the ballpark of what the market value was going to be. If you want to see what my sample CMA looked like, there's a link over there on the left-hand side, and you can get a feel for it. Now, that's you know, a program that that was the a program that I used in Denver. I don't know if it's still there. It probably looks pretty different at this point. But you can kind of get a feel for the type of information that, that I included in it. Now, by the way, something that I should have mentioned, but I'll mention it now, is that I highly recommend that you do your own CMAs and not rely on CMA software to do it for you. You probably know that again also if you've been to any of my shows about pricing. Okay. So it's time for your second appointment with the seller. Remember, this is the appointment that you either made as you were leaving the other day or you called them up the next morning and say, hey, I've got my CMA done. Um, you know, Can I come over tonight and, and tell you what I got? Okay, this appointment, you're going to do a lot more talking, but you're still going to be talking about them, not about you. The purpose of this second appointment is to go through the CMA and answer any questions that they've come up with since since your first meeting. And maybe now that they've met you and maybe they're kind of liking you, they might have looked at your pre-listing package and might have some questions about that, so be prepared for it. I had kind of a wrap for going through the market information, and you'll find yours, but basically I would first go through the current competition, and by that I mean the active listings. If I'd previewed them, which I always had, I would throw in some relevant commentary as I went through the active competition. We'd then move to the solds. I would first talk about the summary of all the comparable sales, and then I would explain why I picked the three or four from that list that are the most comparable sales. So in case that doesn't make sense, what I would do is I would pick out all of the homes that a buyer for their home might have looked at. Okay, does that, you know, so, you know, probably, I mean, depending on the price range, maybe, you know, within $50,000, you know, somewhat similar square footage, somewhat similar amenities, obviously, somewhat similar location. But an appraiser, you know, I would include properties that an appraiser might not use as comparables, but that a buyer would be looking at. And then from that list, I would pick out three or four that I considered to be the most comparable. And then we would go through the deal. The, the details of those and, can, and do a comparison. So we would talk about, on the most comparable sales, we'd talk about the square footage, the other specs, the location, the condition, any special features, and of course the list price, the sold price, 
and the days on market. If there are any pending sales that are relevant, we'll, we'll mention them briefly too. Then, shut up. If the seller seems dismayed or otherwise sad about the data that you're sharing, you'll just smile and nod. Okay? No need to lecture. Don't need to be defensive or even apologetic. There's really not a lot you can do or you should say if the seller is expressing frustration with what your CMA is saying. And this is where you're doing your homework and doing it well will really benefit you. If the, seller, if the seller starts questioning you on your data, if you simply pulled the CMA from a software program and you're not really familiar with what's on it, frankly, you're going to be toast in the credibility department, not to mention the confidence department. Now, if the seller seems happy with your data, and maybe they will be, if it's what he expected and he's ready to move forward with pricing, then, then fine. But if he isn't, if he's struggling with the information that you've given him, the data that you've given him. Tell him you'll leave the CMA with him so he could review it in private, and you'll check back in the morning to see what he's decided to do. Now, did you notice that so far I have not told you how to recommend a price or how to tell him what his home is worth? That's because we haven't done that yet. All right? When you take the approach of letting the seller digest the material in private, maybe do a little bit of sulking or <laughs> whining about what his house is worth. He might even be a little mad at you for, for presenting it, but let him do all that in private, and then he'll make the right decision for him. Now, that decision might be to go ahead and price the home where it belongs. It might be to wait to list the home until the market improves. Or it might be to hire another real estate agent who has promised him a higher price. Again, this is where you're doing your own CMAs and being familiar with the data there will benefit you. If the seller challenges you on the data and you aren't secure in it, then it's going to be easy to be pushed into overpricing the home due to your own insecurity um, that maybe the seller or these other agents know something that you don't. Now, if the seller is ready to sign the listing agreement with or without a final price, go for it. If they want more time, that's fine too. Um, take your leave confidently, professionally, and let him know you'll call in the morning to see what he's decided. So this is where I'm going to stop with my prepared material. There's probably a dozen different directions I could go right now as to what it is that happens next to clarify things that I've already told you, but I'd like to see what your questions are. What you're going, wait a minute, I don't get that. How does, what, why do you do it that way? Or, or wait a minute, what, when do you do this? Or, or, well, what happens next? What do we do then? So if you guys can just tell me what you want to know, we'll go from there. And we have a full half hour at least to answer, answer your questions. So let me go to my board, see what we have, and then just bring them on. Okay, Robin's asking. This is a question that came in, actually our first question of the day. I'm hoping that you'll talk about doing a listing presentation as a new agent, one who doesn't have listings and just a couple of sales. So how does a new agent go into a listing, a listing appointment? I remember my first listing appointment like it was yesterday. And it was 14 months into my career, which was lucky for me because I had had a lot of experience with buyers at that point. I was fairly confident in myself as a, listing, as a buyer agent, but I had never 
had a listing. I had never gone on a listing appointment even. It was back in a, in a seller's market. And as a new agent, I had plenty of buyers, just didn't get any sellers until, like I said, 14 months into my career. I got the listing. I tell you what made it for me was being prepared. I walked into that listing appointment. I knew every house in that neighborhood. I previewed every house I could. I I poured through the MLS. Now, this was back in 1997 when we didn't have all the interior pictures. We didn't have all of the information online. Um, so I was out. I was driving by the houses. Um, I spent literally 48 hours straight preparing for this listing appointment. So when I walked in, I, I knew my market. Okay, now the seller asked me flat out if I'd ever had a listing before, so I guess the fact that I was new, I didn't manage to hide that, and I said no, I hadn't. And I was honest about that. She was concerned, so she actually called some of the buyers that I had worked with in the last year and talked to them about my you know, professionalism, competence, work ethic, whatever. In any event, she ended up hiring me, and there's more to that story, which is kind of funny, but she ended up hiring me. We sold the house, and, you know, that's fine. But just know that in your first listing appointments as a new agent, you're going to be insecure. You're going to be nervous. There's really no way to completely overcome that. It's part of the package of being new at anything. So, you know, don't fret too much if you're nervous. That's perfectly logical to be nervous. But the more prepared you are as far as market information goes, and remember, I'm going to tell you to listen more than you talk. So if you're not in presentation mode, if you're listening, if you're asking intelligent questions, the seller may not realize that you haven't done this before. Now, if they ask, you need to be honest. But, you know, if you're focusing on them, I mean, they could have been, they could have been talking to the most successful agent in the neighborhood, and if that agent presented to them and didn't, you know, didn't act like they cared about the, the person, they'll like you better. Okay? Will you get every listing you go after as a new agent because of your, you know, it, despite your inexperience? No, you won't, and that's okay. All right? Everything's a learning experience. So, Okay. David's asking if I advocate a pre-listing package. Yes, we talked about that. Um, Patrice is asking, what are your thoughts on a digital listing presentation? Um, hate it. Absolutely hate the idea of a digital listing presentation. Um, why? Well, one, I don't think you should do a presentation at all. So I, I'm just picturing sitting around the kitchen table, all of us huddled over the laptop or the iPad or whatever it is, and the agent going through it page by page, you know, with all of their fancy graphics and graphs and charts and yada, 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 and the seller sitting there politely going through it, not giving a flying flip what's on there, just wanting to talk about them, you know, wanting to talk about their situation, not be presented to. And to me, it's almost like these digital shows are even worse than sitting down with some paper and flipping through it because you feel like you have to stare at the thing and politely appreciate it. Um, a few years ago, I had some um, Sears or Lowe's or Home Depot, I don't know who it was, Sears, I think, came out. I wanted some carpet. And it, it was part of the sales pitch that I literally had to sit through a 45-minute online presentation of why I should buy carpet from, I think it was Sears. And the salespeople had to do it. They were monitored by the home office, and if they didn't go through 
this presentation, they'd get in trouble. So I remember sitting at the table watching this presentation on his computer going, you've got to be kidding me. I don't want to sit here and watch this. I want him to go measure my room, give me some samples, and tell me what it's going to cost to carpet my house. That's what I want. <laughs> I don't want to listen to a 45-minute presentation and have to sit here and look and be polite. So that's my thought. Let's see. Scott's asking, what do I use for the What to Expect seller book? Um, and if those, if you've opened up the, I think it's the market analysis, the, the sample CMA, or no, I'm sorry, the sample listing pr presentation, I mentioned um, a booklet that I would give to sellers called What to Expect When on the Market. And it was a nice little book I wrote up myself, again. I will say it's kind of funny because I thought it was a really good little helpful book, and I don't think anybody ever read it. <laughs> this is such good inf information. I don't know that my sellers ever even looked at it. And it was presented fairly nicely. But um, I don't remember what exactly was in it, but it was just sort of, you know, what to expect, you know, how showings work, you know, how timing works, um, what to expect as far as offers are concerned. Um, I, I don't remember what all was in it, but it was a nice little book, and it's something if you have the Soulful Mega Toolkit, which I, I'm sure a lot of you do, it's in there in editable form, so you can actually create your own. Let's see. Karen's saying, I'm getting ready to list a property now. I did feel it felt larger to me than the tax record stated. I asked the seller to have it measured. For $75, we gained 106 square feet. Um, yep, that's good. And, yeah, I mean, that really is a good question to always ask when you go on a listing appointment is, do you have a copy of, of the appraisal? So um, depending on your market, I know in Denver the tax records, which you know would show a square footage, were – often very, very wrong um, for various reasons. Jenna's saying, helpful, this makes sense, treating the client like a human, what a concept. <laughs> okay, Carrie's asking, what happens now? How do you determine the price with the seller? Okay, um, let me, I'll, I'll touch on that and probably some more of you will ask me questions that I'll elaborate, but um, pricing, I mean, again, that's a whole nother show to talk about how to price, but if you've done your homework, if you've done your CMA, which you have, obviously, you know what the price range is going to be. I don't want you to tell the seller until they're ready to hear it. So, and when, so, so when I talk about you know, the second meeting and if the seller is, is dismayed by what the data is saying, because let's say if your most comparable sales are showing, you know, a pri you know, prices of 210, 215, 223, um, 199, and the seller's hoping for 250, 260. It's going to be clear to the seller you ain't going there, okay? But you want him to process that by himself. You don't have to beat him over the head with it. Now, if at, you know, so I want you to go into your second meeting knowing what the price range needs to be, but I don't want you to tell the seller until he's ready to hear it. Now, when is he ready to hear it? Well, if He's not freaking out in that meeting, and he says, okay, what do you think? Then you can tell him what you think. And maybe if you want to do kind of have a pocket analysis that you don't have in your stuff, but you have it in your file, you can whip it out at that point and say, well, here's what I'm thinking. Um, or if you just have it in your head, you can say, well, here's what I'm thinking. Um, if they're not ready, then that's when you call them back the next day you say, okay, what, you know, what are you thinking? You know, you're looking at the same numbers I'm looking at. What do you, where do you think we need to be? Um, 
And he'll, I mean, a lot of times when you put the ball in their court and ask for their opinion, they're going to be a lot more open. Well, they're going to be a lot more reasonable than if you say, well, I, from what I'm seeing here, the price is 219.9. Um, we'll go with that. And the guy's going, wait, 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 no, I wanted 250. And then you've got an argument brewing. So you kind of want to wait until you're asked. I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but at some point they're going to say, well, what do you think? Once they've asked, they'll listen to your answer. Okay. Um, and then as far as pricing the home, again, if you've done your market analysis, um, you're going to have a feeling for what the price is. Now, another burning question that you know maybe somebody has asked on here and I haven't seen it yet, and that is, what if the seller wants more for the house than you think it's worth? Will you take the listing? You know what? It's happened to all of us. It will happen you know, it will happen to you throughout your career. You will take listings. You, you will overprice listings, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes you know you're doing it. It will happen. Okay. Here's how I handled it is in Denver, my market that I specialized in, every single home was more or less unique. So, you know, there wasn't like it was I didn't work in tract home neighborhoods. So Pricing was much more of an art than than a science. We certainly never priced price per square foot. I mean, it really some of it was a gut feel. A lot of it was a working experience working with buyers. So, if my market analysis was saying a range of say you know 215 to 225, but the house is really nice, the location's really nice, it's feeling good, I was okay going ahead and pushing, the, depending on the market, but I was okay pushing the market, and I told him, let's do it for two weekends. This is what I'd say. We'll try it for two weekends. Um, I could, and I would be, you know, I'd, I'd say, you know, I could be wrong. I don't have a crystal ball. Pricing in Denver is an art, not a science, and I don't want to give away your money, so let's try it for this weekend and next weekend. If on Monday we're not getting the activity we want, we're not getting what we want, then we'll go down to somewhere closer to this price. Is that okay? And they would always say yes. I don't want to give it 30 days. I, w I don't want to give it 60 days. I'll give it two weekends. That's enough exposure in a reasonably good market to find out if, if you're overpriced. Okay. Now, if the house is a dump um, or if it's next door to a liquor store or something, um, if you have my fun book, you can read about fatal flaws. If the home has what I call a fatal flaw, that means you're going to have to price it 50000 under the comps and the seller wants to price it more than the comps, then I'm not going to take it. Now, that took some time to get there. But, yeah, I don't want a listing that I'm not excited about. I don't want a listing that I truly don't think I can sell. And I know when you're a newer agent, you want anything you can get, and especially in some of the boom markets that are out there. You're like, shoot, why not? And that may be true. But um, you will get to the point where you say, you know, I don't want listings I can't sell. So... Um, Okay, Elliot's saying, I understand why the second appointment is, a, is important, um, but feel like you could miss an opportunity between the first and second appointment. Maybe another agent jumps in with the data with him and signs him up. Um, just feel like sometimes only one, you know, there's only one shot. Um, also, just to confirm that you're dropping the marketing proposal on the porch, you don't ring the doorbell or anything. Okay, lots of good questions in there. Personally, I, ha I don't think I ever lost a seller to another agent who did a one what they call a one-step listing presentation. 
I, in my market, now this may be different in, in more tract home markets, but in the Denver market, there is no way I could properly price a house. No way I could properly price a house without seeing the inside and talking with the seller about their situation. Those things factor into the right price. So if another agent's coming in and you say, with the data, how can they come in with the data if they haven't seen the house, if they haven't had this conversation? Okay, so maybe another agent's a step ahead of you and they're on their, um, you know, what do you say, their, their second step. They're, you know, they do a two-step listing appointment too, but they're on their second step. Well, you know, that's just the reality of the situation. But I can almost promise you, you are not going to lose that listing to another agent because you're doing a two-step presentation. You might very well lose it to another agent for another reason, but that isn't going to be it. And this is something I think you can explain to the seller. Not You never want to talk about competition. You never want to even give the impression that you're competing with somebody else because that's not confident. Okay, That's kind of insecure. You're a professional. You're in there to have a conversation, um, not to win the business, but to have a, a professional conversation. And so you can explain this, again, not trying to buy time, but to say, you know, I'm going to spend the next half an hour, 45 minutes, hour, whatever, I'm, you know, gathering information so that I can give you a very detailed and accurate market analysis. So that's what we're going to do tonight, um, and then we'll be, you know, we'll touch base in the next day or two. When you say that with confidence, and because it's the right thing to do, I mean, it is, it's the right thing to do, then... Um, you know, I don't think you're going to have any trouble. Now, can you get a listing agreement your first night? Sure. If they're liking what they're seeing, if they're liking you, if they like, you know, you dropped off your pre-listing package, if or maybe they were referred to you, sure, you can get the listing agreement signed that night if they're comfortable doing that. I'm fine with that. You just aren't going to put the price in because you don't know what it is yet. So, yeah, if they want to sign the listing agreement, Go for it. Now, this gets into another question, and I'll get back to the rest of your questions on here, but I I did almost always what I a three-step or even a four-step listing appointment, listing process. What the third because on the second well, here's the thing, again, in my in my market, which was Denver, which was mostly older homes, very used homes, there I would almost always give my sellers homework to do. You know, there was there's stuff they need to fix, there's stuff they need to clean up, there's stuff that needs to be done before we go on the market. And so in my second appointment when we talked about pricing, I would also tell them that, you know, depending on the condition of the house, you know, here's the thing, if you do these other things, which we may or may not not talk about in that meeting, but we would talk about them conceptually, then we can reprice and reevaluate once you've done them. Okay, that's again a subject for a different teleseminar. But my, what you might call a third step, would be to meet with the seller, probably with a home stager, with a handyman, and figure out what they're going to do to improve their home. And then the fourth step, Again, you know, it kind of depends on, I mean, this isn't all written in stone. But the fourth step then is to reprice and reevaluate given the work that they've done and any changes in the market. This might be two or three months later. 
Okay, market might have changed, so we're going to do another quick CMA and update. So I personally am not going to put a final price on a home until we're ready to go on the market. So if, like, say my second appointment is on you know February 1st, we don't hit the market until March 15th. We're not going to put a final price on it February 1st. Now we can put a price in there and say, hey, we'll look at this on March 15th, but you know, I want you know, you need to be open to repricing and reevaluating when you hit the market. Um, let's see, and then you were also asking about dropping the marketing proposal on the porch. That's kind of me just being an introvert. <laughs> um, I don't like you know ringing somebody's doorbell and making little small talk while I hand it to them. But if you're comfortable, you know, you know, ringing the doorbell saying, "Here's my pre-listing packet," just give it to them and go go. You know, your meeting's going to be at your appointment. Okay, so for me, it was just comfortable to say, hey, I'm going to drop it off on your front porch. Um, you'll have it by, you know, tomorrow evening, and that just was comfortable for me. So totally up to you. Nothing that says you have to, you know, drop it and run if you don't want to. Um, okay, Jessica's asking, how do you get the listing if other agents are over-promising how much the house can sell for? And this is something you'll face throughout your entire career because there are other agents out there who either knowingly will overprice a home to get it or just won't. They don't know any better, but the seller says, hey, I need 250 and the listing agent says, all right, you know, let's try that or let's do that. That sounds good to me. So how do you overcome that? Well, you're not always going to be able to. If, you know, if, if they really want 250 and this other agent is telling them they can absolutely get 250 and you're pretty sure they can't get 250 because you've actually done your homework, then you're probably going to lose the listing. Or you're probably going to say, I don't want it. Okay, and that's okay. Um, there was an agent in my neighborhood in Denver who her listings were literally 100000 overpriced, and she got, she got them. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes they'd sell, which I could never quite figure that one out. But um, people knew, people noticed. But you know, they would still list with her because if I'm going in there telling them their house is worth 250, she's going in there telling them their house is worth 350. They're going to like her better, you know. And you know, I would lose listings to that. And oh well, I'm not willing to jeopardize, you know, to sacrifice my integrity and get a listing I can't sell because it's overpriced. Okay. Um, again, the more confident you are in your data that you have gathered and researched the more comfortable you're going to be not acquiescing to taking a listing that's, that's overpriced. Um, Debbie's asking um, if I could be, go into details about what's in the pre-listing package. Um, it's actually just my listing. It's my entire listing proposal. There's nothing pre-listing about it except that I'm giving it to them before I'm meeting with them. So if you look at the sample that is there, that's pretty much what would go in it. I would not include the CMA material. Okay, so the pre-listing package is basically my listing proposal without the, any CMA, without any market information. That was what I did. Um, let's see. Good question. Cindy's asking, how do you do a net sheet if you haven't recommended a price? Now, notice I didn't call it a net sheet. I called it an estimated cost of sale. So I would pick a number that, you know, is somewhere in the ballpark. And, you know, that was a little, you know, kind of a little finesse there. Would I, you know, make it high? Would I make it low? Um, I probably would shoot for making it a little lower 
just to kind of, you know, then if I was if it, if we came back with higher numbers, they would be happy. But I say, you know, this is just illustrative. You know, let's say in the, with the numbers I've been sharing so far, let's say I would go in at 210. I'd say, okay, just this is just illustrative. At a sales price of 210, here are estimates of what it's going to cost you. Obviously, if we sell the house for higher, some of these numbers are going to be more, but your net will be higher. So it just gets on the table. You know, here's what commissions are, here's what title insurance is, here's what transfer fees are, here's what, you know, these sorts of things. So then when you get the price, if you want to do a net sheet, then you can do that. But I called it an estimated cost of sale. All right? Jimmy's saying, when challenged on your fee, what and what do, what do you do to hold firm and not reduce your listing fee? Low commission brokerages are putting pressure to reduce commission. Oh, I love this question. I could do a whole show on it. Well, I think I have. I've done more than one. Um, there's a lot of different ways to answer the question of how do you resist pressure to reduce your commission if somebody asks you to. Oh, how do, I have so many answers for this. Um, the first answer is, gosh, so many ways to answer this question. Um, first, I want you to feel good about your fee. I want you to be confident in your fee that what you are providing, what you are providing is a good value for the fee that you charge. If you personally are charging a fee that you are not comfortable with, that you feel is not marketable, is not good value, you're going to have trouble selling it. You're going to have trouble not acquiescing to pressure to lower it. So this is where I really feel like I, I wish brokers would give their agents more freedom to set their own fees so that they can, you know, just kind of build up to a higher fee, you know, it kind of increase their comfort zone. That's one thing. The other thing, um, personally, I was always very upfront with my fee, as I mentioned earlier. I put it in my pre-listing package. It's on my website. So I got it on the table as soon as I could. And doing that seemed... It, it, it didn't set up that adversarial relationship. Here's my fee. You know what it is. You know, we can talk about it if you want, but, you know, this is what my fee is. And I didn't get a lot of pushback on it. The other thing I did that you might notice in my sample listing proposal is I offered a choice um, of fees. And you can read on there and see how I did it. They could prepay part of the commission at the listing, and then I would reduce my commission at the end, or they could pay my full commission at the end. If they did the prepay, they would save money um, at the end of the day, but some of it was prepaid. So when you give people a choice, they actually focus more on what their choice is as opposed to, well, can I, can I get her to reduce it? Speaking of that, I don't want you to get ever, ever, ever get snotty or snarky or defensive if somebody asks you to reduce asked you to reduce your fee. It's the American way. There's nothing in the world wrong with it. Probably every time, you know, if you know that something is negotiable, you, you're going to try to negotiate it. And if you don't, you feel like you didn't get the best deal you could have got. So I don't have any issue at all with a homeowner asking a real estate agent to either justify their fee or asking for a reduction. Now, here's something to consider is you have a fee that you charge or you'd like to charge, and you'll you know you'll charge it if you can get it. But if someone pressures you on it, you'll reduce it. To me, that's a massive lack of integrity. Sorry, that's harsh, but it is. So let's say that you go out and you interview for a listing, and somebody accepts your fee as written, 
and you're like, well, cool, that was easy. The next guy you go out and talk to, they pressure you on it and you reduce it. That's wrong. And you can tell that to people politely, respectfully. Don't lecture, don't scold, don't get all snotty and imply that you know these people are, are bad people, but that you know it's not fair for you to charge different people different things just because some people ask you for a, a discount and some people don't. So that's kind of some short versions of it. To, to speak to the discount broker, I don't have any issue in the world with discounts, with quote-unquote discount brokerage. A couple reasons for that. One, I mean, hey, it's a, it's a free country. It's a capitalistic, you know, if, if somebody else can charge less for a product and be profitable, and if the consumer likes what they're getting for that price, guess what? Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, now, it really, it, I mean, when you say it puts pressure on you, yeah, and as well it should. Okay, if, if somebody can provide the service that you're providing at a lower price, and it's, if it's a comparable service, then guess what? Bully for them. Now, if they're providing less service than you're providing, then you don't need to match that. No reason for you to match it. But if, if it's, you know, oranges to oranges, and they can do it and charge less, then really the pressure's on you to justify why you're charging more. And you may or may not be able to do that. Okay. Um, I owned a discount company in Denver, and one of the big retail companies contacted me and told me the same thing. They said, you know, because we were full service. We were full service discount company. We did almost everything that the regular companies did. We just charged less for it. And one of the, you know, the big retail companies contacted me and said, you know, this isn't fair. You're making it hard for my agents to justify their fee. And I giggled. I didn't giggle in her face, but I was like, that's not my problem now, is it? If you're charging, and they were literally charging twice as much as we were, and if, you, if you're charging twice as much as we are and you can't justify it, whose problem is that? Okay, and in fact, I got very, I got a little passive-aggressive back with her, and my comment to her was, um, well, I'm sure your agents won't have any problem explaining why their fees are so much higher than ours. I never got a response to that. But if there are people out there that can do it for less and they do a good job, more power to them. That's, that's the reality of the American way. So let's see. At the beginning of your talk, you mentioned the three things you focus on. I have two, about me and the fee, but can you please repeat number one? Um, what you'll do to market the home. What is your marketing proposal? Okay what I'm going to do to market the home. Okay, Joey's saying, not sure if I caught that correctly, so you provide a recommended value range at the end of your CMA or you did not. Um, if so, what was the range like? A set number, $25,000 margin. Okay, thanks for the great insight. Okay. Um, I kind of, you know, I don't know that I ever did it exactly the same every time. I, you know, sort of felt my way along. But what, what he's asking is, you know, so in my CMA, my detailed CMA, was there a number at the end of it that said, here's what your house is worth? No. Um, I did not include that number in the CMA. Now, maybe I would have it kind of separately in my folder. I probably did. Or I knew what that number was. Or the data that I'm showing them is making it really obvious that what range we're in anyway. I mean, if all of the comps are 215 to 225 and all of the competition is 225 to 240, let's say, I mean, what's our range? I mean, our range here, depending on the condition of the home and the location, whatever, is, you know, 215 to 240, okay? And, and where it falls in there, we'll just have to kind of figure, we'll have to talk that out. So 
what I found most of the time is that we would just kind of come to a meeting of the minds as to what the price is. Maybe we were 5000 apart. I don't care about $5,000. I mean, at least in my Denver market, $5,000, who cares? In fact, my feeling on it was I'd like to get my seller every extra $1,000 I can. So if the market analysis is saying 222 hey, let's do 224 <laughs> 225 Those extra few thousand dollars in there might benefit my seller, and it's not going to scare a buyer away. So that's another thing to keep in mind is that you know there are pricing tiers that you're not going to scare a buyer away if you're a few thousand more than, let's say, what the market analysis says. So you know, if the market analysis says 220 and you price at 239, you might have an issue there. But if the market analysis says 220 and you price at 226, you know, that's potentially 6,000 more dollars in your seller's pocket. It's also making your seller happy that you're willing to push the market a little bit, but you're not going to scare away buyers. That's just a kind of a pricing strategy. Okay, good question. Um, do you at any point ask the seller what he thinks his house is worth to get an idea where he's coming from? You know, I don't – I didn't, and I have kind of mixed feelings on how that how that might play out, and I think it's something you can kind of feel out, or they may tell you. But what I think, to me, the gut feeling I have is that when you ask them what they think it's worth, they have drawn a line in the sand. I wouldn't want to ask them that question until they have seen the data. So let's say – that I walk in the door and I say, well, what do you think your house is worth? And they say, well, you know, we're hoping for 249 you know, 250 260 would be great. And I'm sitting there going, well, crap, my, <laughs> my, my CMA is showing 220 The seller has voiced what he thinks his house is worth, and he's got some ego in it now. This is just my overanalyzing. But now he's got, a, he's got some ego in that price that he told me, and I would rather not have that voiced until we've gone through the data. Now, let's say that you've gone through the data and the seller goes, I mean, and you can maybe say, well, is this in line with, once you've gone through the data, maybe say something like, is this what you were thinking? You look a little dismayed. It's okay to acknowledge that they're not looking happy. You know, you look a little disappointed. Is this what you were thinking? Were you thinking something else? At that point, you can talk about, well, I was really hoping for 260. And I'm, I'm just kind of talking out loud here, but you can, you know, some, they say that. You can say, well, I'm not seeing that here. You know, I, I'm just not seeing it. I'd like to, you know, but I'm, I'm not seeing that in these numbers. And if you're prepared, if your market analysis is good, then they're not going to see it either. Okay, Sue, so, uh, similar. What was your response if seller needs that? I, you know, I need to get 300000 and you know the home should be priced at 275. Um, it's going to depend on the home. It's going to depend on the market. You know, you don't want to be snotty and say, "Well, what you need is not relevant to the market." I mean, really, come on, that's insulting. That's if some if some snotty real estate agent said that to me, I'd be like, "Yeah, whatever." You know, here's the door. But so you don't want to say, "Well, what you need is not important here," but rather go back to the numbers. You know, again, I'm not seeing that here. I'm not seeing that number here. Now, if the house is really nice and you think, hey, you know what, 300 is high, but maybe, maybe, you know, maybe you could meet her in the middle. Maybe you could say, you know what, your house is really nice. You've got this great view. Um, I'm a really good listing agent. Let's try it for a weekend. 
but we've got to come down to here. If you're not going to be comfortable in the 275 range, then I'm not the right agent for the job. You don't want to be, you know, say, well, then I don't want your listing, but you can say, I'm not the right agent for the job. Now, if you want the listing at 300, if it's over, you know, even if it's overpriced, then, you know, that's that. But if you want to be able to be persuasive as, you know, be respectful, be polite, don't lecture, don't scold, and just say, you know, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not seeing this here. Would you be okay if 275 is the right number? Are you still wanting to sell? And if they say no, well, there you go. Okay. Um, something, a, a blog of mine that I wrote several years ago is called Dear Seller, What's Your Plan B? No. Was that it? There's two that I wrote. One was called What's Your Plan B? And one was Which, which Kind of Seller's Regret Do You Want? And the sell, in um, both of those, if you go to Searchable Soul, searchablesoul.com, you can look them up. You know, you can do, look up Plan B. You can look up Seller's Regret, and you'll find both of those blogs, and that'll help you there too. Um, I don't have time to go into them, but let's see. Do you ever ask if the sell, the seller if they've spoken with other agents? Yeah, I'll ask them that. I don't mind. I, I'm not. You know, yeah, I would ask them out of curiosity. And, you know, again, confidently, not as if, you know, there's something wrong with that. You don't want to elicit an apology from them because that's not necessary. And even sort of an assumptive like, well, what are the other agents that you're talking to telling you? You know, so just assume that they're talking to other agents and they might say, oh, no, you're the only one we're talking to. You say, oh, okay, well, that's that's cool. Um, so, yeah, I don't have a problem with you asking them that. Um, what I think you might find is that those other agents did not do nearly the homework you did if you did this homework I'm telling you to do. Other agents very rarely do good CMAs, or they just do CMA. They plug the address into the CMA program, spit out a CMA, and they're not able to speak intelligently about it. So you know, that may be where some of these higher prices are coming in. Um, I did one of those on a property of mine recently just for fun. I got into a CMA program. I plugged in the address. It spit out a market value literally 100000 higher than what I know that house is worth. I know why it did, but it's because a human being did not go in and do the analysis. It was a machine doing the analysis, so it didn't factor in that the house across the street that sold was on a golf course and mine wasn't. You know, there's a difference there, <laughs> okay? But so it told me that my house was worth nearly 100000 more than I know it's worth because of the comps that it chose. Stacy, any special tips you'd recommend we give to a seller who's listing a home that's currently rented out, has tenants? Um, I hated it. I I got to the point where I wouldn't, I just would not list tenant-occupied properties. It's It was just no fun for anybody. No matter what the tenant promises you they'll do to cooperate, they don't. And if the seller's not going to be the go-between, your, your life is going to be miserable. Um, that said, again, I'm going, to I'm going to refer you in the interest of time to Searchable Soul. It's searchablesoul.com. And just type in in the search box, tenant, and there are some blogs in there about tenant-occupied properties. So just I'm pretty sure there are anyway. So look at those, and that will help you there. Okay, Karen's saying, we're a boom market here. I'm running into agents that I call discount brokers selling at a greatly discounted commission. Um, how can my CMA proposal compete with the discount brokers or can we? I probably answered that since she's asked that question. Um, but, it, I mean, that again, that's 
that's what do you call it? Um, I don't know if capitalism is the right word. What's the word? Uh, you know, if people are out there willing to work for less money and able to make a go of it, then they set the market. You know, if what you offer is better than what they offer, for whatever reason, level of service, um, market exposure, whatever, then, you know, sometimes you'll be able to compete against them. You know, frankly, if you're in a boom market, I'll just throw this out there. Let's say that you're in a boom market and every house you put on the market and then it is going to sell. You know it's going to sell. It's going to sell quickly. You're not going to have inspection issues because people are so desperate to get into homes. You know what? Charge less. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's going to be an easier, in some ways, an easier transaction. You're not going to be on the market for months. Um, yeah, you're going to have to deal with multiple offers maybe and other things, but you know, I'd rather have a house that sells to multiple offers in a weekend than one that sits on the market for six months and costs everybody time and money. So, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And I, I hate to say that, but if a house is going to sell quickly, and I know it's going to sell quickly, and it's going to be less work and less drama and less stress for me, I'll take that listing. I, I will want that listing. Now, again, you're not going to want to, you know, just do it for some and not others, but I'm just thinking out loud here, if I were in a boom market and every house that I put on the market was going to sell quickly because of the market, I might reduce my rates overall during that boom market and say, hey, you know what, it's easier right now. I'm okay with that. I'm okay charging less. The market is doing a lot of my work for me. I don't have to do an open house. I don't have to do a virtual tour. I don't have to do, you know, all these things I normally have to do. I would have no problem reducing my rates in that sort of market until the market comes back. Let's see, how do you overcome it when a seller just wants to go to the lowest bidder on commissions? Um, some sellers are going to want to go with the lowest bidder, and that's their right. That's their prerogative. Sometimes you'll be able to overcome it. Sometimes you won't. What you don't want to do is ever criticize their judgment on that. You don't want to criticize the other agent or company because that makes you look insecure. Um, and it, it doesn't, you know, if you're comfortable with your fee and you're comfortable, you know, that you're providing good value, then sometimes you'll be able to sell it, sometimes you won't. Um, that's real helpful, I know. <laughs> what are your thoughts on providing the seller with a private link to an online listing proposal or sending via email? You know, I'm okay with that. Um, I will say that the ones that I have gotten have been the ones that are generated off of those CMA programs, and they're 37 pages of fluff, two pages of actual data, and those two pages of actual data were clearly just pulled off of the machine. The agent didn't do them. So, I, you know, I've gotten them, I've looked through them, and like, you know, whatever. You know, so I'd rather they have something in their hands to look at. Maybe that's just me being old-fashioned. I would prefer that you drop something off, but, you know, if you want to email it or give them a link, that's okay. Just, like I said, the ones that I have gotten, I didn't even look at because it was so, it was fluff. It was just all stuff that clearly the corporate office had written, and I didn't care about any of it. So, um, Let's see. How did the prepaid fee work with your broker? That's a funny question, Cindy. Um, a couple different things. One, I did it when I was with Remax, and I was at 100%, so it didn't matter to Remax. I would, you know, I got the whole fee whether or not I mean, I got the whole fee because I was at 100%. At the time, the kind of funny thing is, is it never occurred to me that it should have gone through REMAX. I mean, it should have been written to REMAX and then reimbursed to me. 
Um, I don't know why I didn't think of that. I just never did. So I had the checks written out to me, and I shouldn't have done that, and nothing ever happened. Um, I mean, I never got in trouble or anything. But, yes, if you're going to do the prepay fee, you know what? It needs to go through your broker even if you're 100%. And if you're not 100%, then it definitely needs to go through your broker because they're going to get a chunk of that, and it needs to be approved before you do it that your broker will allow you to do that. Um, then, But in the the main time I used it was when I owned my own company. So I was the broker, so it didn't matter then. So, yeah. Um, Lucy's saying, if the buyer appraisal shows more square footage than the listing square footage, do the seller need to revise their square footage in the seller's disclosure? Well, what, what we did in Denver, you know, this is going to be – this is going to be market specific as far as how it works. We had a seller's property disclosure in Denver. What I would do when there are two different square footages is I would list them both. So the county site shows a square footage of 1426. The appraisal dated blah, blah, blah shows 1873. And then the seller would sign it and then the disclosure would say, you know, buyer to verify. So that's how I would handle it is I would just go ahead and I would market it with the higher one if I had an appraisal, you know, to back it up. But I would make sure in the disclosure that I said that there were two, just to to cover everybody's. Okay, so many good things. So I hope it was helpful. Um, appreciate. I'm looking forward to your feedback. And um, you all go have a nice weekend. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. Bye-bye.